Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and um, I can't tell you how excited I am to spend this next hour or so with one of the really preeminent voices of wisdom in the Western world um, today. And I, I think you'll understand that this is not an exaggeration uh, as I introduce you to um, this amazing individual, Lama Suryadar. So as usual, I will uh, recite a formal and uh, brief introduction of this remarkable individual, and then we're going to jump into some really rich conversations. So Lama Surya Das, um, by the way, I believe this is translated as Servant of the Sun. I mean, what a beautiful name. Um, Lama Surya Das is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars. The Dalai Lama affectionately calls him the American Lama. Lama Surya has spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Yoga, and Tibetan Buddhism with many of the great masters of Asia, including some of the Dalai Lama's own teachers. He is an authorized Lama in the Tibetan um, Buddhist order, a leading spokesperson for Buddhism and contemporary spirituality, a translator, a poet, meditation master, chant master, and spiritual, social spiritual activist, and all around really good guy. And so he's also the author a little bit um, running here with it. He's the author of some um, 13, 14 books, I believe, um, which have been translated into many languages and have had an enormous impact on the landscape of spirituality and um, in the West um, and also obviously Buddhism in the West. And so thank you, my dear friend, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. I, I'm really looking forward to talking about a few things with you. Thank you. And same here. Uh, I just published my 16th book from Sounds True. It's a children's book called The Yeti and the Jolly Lama. So okay. partly I'm mentioning that because I think we need a little more jollyness in our serious Dharma and spiritual community. What do you think? I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it, it's one of the near enemies. It, it's, it's not gaiety. Yeah, it's exactly. It's one of the near enemies, you know, the kind of the right. the self-seriousness and the solemnity of spirituality. I, I think yes. um, people need to spend more time with people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Mingji Rinpoche, who are just constant jokers and, and the life's full of humor. And, you know, to me, um, sorry, it's a play on the inner rendering of the word enlightenment, you know, people who... Yes. Who are lighter in spirit and in heart and, and act with childlike um, wonder and delight at, at the phenomenal world. So before we get into some very specific questions, I always start with my guests by um, asking them, because, of course, what we're doing here, um, Surya, is we're using in this particular uh, nightclub venue, we're fundamentally using dreams um, as a way to explore the nature of mind and reality. And, and in so doing, we explore the, the deeper implications of lucidity, talking about lucidity um, principle altogether, how it ties into uh, awareness. Um, and so there's a the vast array of things will be very easily uh, segued into. But I want to start by providing you a platform to talk to us a little bit about the role of dreams and dream yoga in your life because you in addition to your books you you issued with sounds true a wonderful uh cd set on dream yoga and there aren't too many scholar practitioners that do that um and so share with us the the place of dreams and then in particular the place of lucid dreaming and dream yoga in your own psycho-spiritual development 
Sure. And Andrew, I have a great deal of uh, respect and appreciation and love even for your work in this field. So thank you. It's very important. Well, it's very kind of you, my friend. Thank you. The other people that are working in it and publishing in it and, you know, evolving the thinking and practices there, Stephen Labarge and others. Um, it's a very important practice to me that I've had some, let's say, uh, affinity for, if not success, over the decades. Um, starting with my in my three-year retreat and dark three-nine-day dark retreat and other things, and just mentioning these in passing for those that are familiar with this as a Tibetan Buddhist practice, not just as the lucid dreaming, a more simple secular forms. But it's a way of awakening to the dream-like nature of reality in the daydream or the bardo between birth and death, which is another bardo, not just the bardo from death to rebirth or other kinds of bardo or transition passageways in between states. But it's actually a way of awakening within the dream, the daydream also, and recognizing the contingency or intangibility and uh, subjectivity or, you know, dreamlike nature of, quote, reality, unquote. And I put quotes around that because reality isn't my, our favorite word in Buddhism. But yeah. Talking in English, you know, awakening from the daydream of illusion, delusion, greed and anger to the clarity and transparency and unselfish, uh, selfless joy of being. Beautiful. And that's the importance of lucid dreaming and Tibetan dream yoga. So I put out one of the things that I published from Sounds Through in the 90s. It's called Tibetan Dream Yoga. And there's an enhanced DVD, and it's probably streamable now. And I think it's a very important practice. It's doable in a secular as well as in its traditional uh, Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana or Diamond Path approach, Tibetan Dream Yoga. And I think it's very important for us to remember the a Buddhist saying from the Mahayana Sutras, which a lot of, of course, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan, so-called Tibetan Buddhism, Himalayan Buddhism is based on, Tantrayana, Vajrayana, and so on. Yep. Sangak, what's it called? The secret mantra, Vajrayana. Sangak, yep. to be technical. We're going to talk about the yanas, which people can get overly attached and involved in. Um, it's very important to remember, and I have often said this, and I like to teach my students these kind of, quote, American mantras, like from the Mahayana Sutras. I think it's the Diamond Sutra, Prajnaparamita Sutra, Wisdom Sutra anyway. Like a dream, like a fantasy, like a mirage. And that's one of the eight similes of illusion. And Buddhism, since early times and early Buddhism, the root vehicle, early Buddhism, the sutra vehicle and so on, the polytext, has talked about reality as like a dream and like an illusion, not as a dream, as an illusion, as the Hindus say. And that's one distinction between Hinduism and Buddhism that could well be understood by those of us who are interested in these uh, finer points. We're in getting on with refining our spiritual understanding with lojung, spiritual refinement, mind training, attitude transformation, lojung and see things as like a dream, like an illusion, like a mirage, like echoes, like bubbles going by on a fast-moving stream, and recognize their transparency, their contingency, their impermanence, and 
non-separateness or selfless nature and so on. So I think this is a great access point or portal, to use a more modern word, into mm -hmm. so-called higher states of consciousness or into transcendental wisdom awareness or the natural state, as we call it, in the non-dual awareness teachings of Vajrayana, Mahamudra, and Dzogchen, the great perfection, the ultimate perspective, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, that things are not what they seem to be. Things are not what they seem to be, and it's like a dream, like illusion. Now, of course, the like is very important to us to understand, just like if your children are having a nightmare, you might well try to wake them up. If they're screaming and shouting and tearing at their bedclothes and sweating, tiger, tiger, or something like that, or fire, tormented in their nightmare, you try to wake them up. But if you can't wake them up, you don't go and get the fire hose. You don't try to get the uh, weapon to catch or, you know, <clears throat> push back the tiger. You know they're going to wake up in the morning because there's no fire and no tiger. It's just a dream. Yes. So in that way, we go through life like a dream and still taking seriously the positive and negative, which may be subjective, the wholesome and unwholesome, the talk Buddhist, the helpful and unhelpful, what's real and what's unreal. You know, there's genuine, uh, what do you call it, clear cognition, and then there's hallucinations and other unreal perceptions and so on, and discerning and discriminating. These distinctions are very, very important to the awakening being, to the bodhisattva, to the practitioner, the seeker, the sojourner, the pilgrim on this great path, the highway of awakening. So like a dream, like a fantasy, like a mirage is a good American mantra to remember. Or just like a dream, like a fantasy. I think there's even a Zen book, perhaps by Nyogen Senzaki, one of the early Zen masters who came to America. 80 years ago or so, called Like a Dream, Like a Fantasy. And this is from, if you want to look it up, we're studying the eight similes of illusion in the Mahayana, Transcendental Wisdom Scripture, the Prajnaparamita Sutra, and I think it's in the uh, Diamond Sutra. I believe that's right. It, 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 let me interrupt you just so briefly, my friend, because I think what you're saying here is incredibly important. And I, if with, with your permission, I want to zip it down a little bit more in the sense of I mean, like, what is the soteriology of this? For instance, why soteriology being, you know, kind of the study of, like, or pursuit of salvation and liberation? And so you're you're hinting at this. But I for our listeners. Say again? Andrew, I love when you talk nerdy. Yeah, nerdy and dirty, isn't it? I, I get off on that. You know, it gets me, gets my heart beating. So, yeah, thanks for calling me on that. But yeah. it, this is important for our it listeners because. Sense. You know, the, the fundamental charter for me is like many people ask um, with lucid dreaming, let alone dream yoga, right? Um, which in my cartography, I, I say dream yoga transcends but includes lucid dreaming. It's like my life is busy. I'm, I'm you know, why should I bother? Why should I do this? And, and for me, I, I'll give you my short riff and then I really would love to hear what you have to say about this is that these teachings – you know, lucid dreaming leads to lucid living and also, parenthetically, lucid dying. Um, it connects to bardo yoga. And the, the way I fundamentally look at it now, to paraphrase it, is that these teachings are core. And they fundamentally, if I'm summarizing what you're saying, is that they allow us to take things seriously without taking them literally. Because if we take things literally, 
and reify them, we suffer in direct proportion to that level of reification. But if we don't take it seriously, then we slide into the host of near enemies of these practices, escapism, spiritual bypassing, you name it. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about just that. So when people listen to this stuff, they go, why should I bother with this stuff? You know, my, my life is so busy. Why should I, you know, I don't want to remove the do not disturb sign, right, when I go to sleep. So riff on that a little bit. Well, the do not disturb sign, like everything, has its place, but shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be overused. Um, <clears throat> and nor underused. There are other near enemies also that we uh, could become aware of, like nihilism is not the same as the realization of the great shunyata, so-called emptiness or subjectivity, as I often translate it, mm -hmm. uh, or intangibility and ungraspability. Uh, near enemy there is nihilism, thinking that nothing matters. And the other extreme, materialism, thinking mistakenly that only what we can measure, what we can see, what we can weigh counts as an extreme scientism, kind of one of the scourges, I think, of the modern era. Not science, sure. but scientism, overly scientific or analytically um, attached and even dogmatic, that if you can't see it, if you can't weigh it, it doesn't exist. Whatever, you know, we could talk about existence and non-existence and other things at another time, but I think this is an important distinction not to fall into the extremes of nihilism on one hand or materialism, overly believing in things as real as we perceive, misperceive, or uh, interpret them to be. So that's why Buddha never really taught or called what he presented as a path of salvation or liberation, Buddhism. He called it the great middle way. And when asked him, said the middle way beyond extremes, like extremes of exists or doesn't exists. There are things maybe in between uh, um, nihilism and materialism, which I see as like two ditches on either side of the multi-lane great highway of awakening. So it's, we don't have to try to find a razor's edge down the middle, but there are many lanes of, awa of awakening, many courses for different horses, different practices and styles for different people, and so on, like jnana and bhakti philosophy or, or um, discriminating awareness as one path and the other one as devotion, emotional path. And then the yoga path that's more physical and ener energy prana oriented. So the middle way includes many lanes, but we try to avoid those extremes. And another extreme is where we fall, we mistake this subjectivity or relativity to talk a little bit modern, maybe, for um, nothing matters or no one can know. And I sometimes feel the postmodern deconstructionists yeah. like Foucault and others fall into this extreme where it starts to undermine every form of assertion or denial. And then there's no handrails, guardrails, signposts, and you get into the realm that I'm afraid politically we're straying into these days in America with our earless feeder, the Agent Orange at the White House, as I call him, right. Trump, where, you know, <clears throat> alternative facts, fake news, and so on is just part of it. And you can't discern what's real or what, what's not real. Evolution and creationism, that the world was created in six days, 
and Darwinian evolution tour equally in a state like Kansas, for example. Yeah. Rather than evolution being on the front burner and those other theories that have been sort of, you know, lost grip on us, mostly in the world, in the modern world, being on the back burner where it should be, but still in the cultural history and zeitgeist, no doubt, no problem, but not equal. So I think the middle way is a great teaching tool and also for self-guidance. I often use it as a touchstone myself, whether I'm becoming too, again, the extremes of like austerity and on the other side, indulgence. The middle way has a lot more freedom and flexibility rather than getting stuck with one extreme always or the other. Another extreme, just to talk modern and American and even therapeutic, is always and never. So many couples or uh, colleagues founder on the words always and never. You always, you never, making viable or intelligent dialogue and communication impossible. Yep. Always, you know, never is a very long time. It might be premature to say never (laughs) or always. And it's often about meaningless things too. So it's just an overreaction. So the middle way I find a great touchstone even for myself. You know, if I'm becoming a workaholic, it might be good work, but it's still a holic. It becomes a yep. substance abuse. If I'm a thinkaholic, you know, thinking is a good tool, but a poor master. The intellect's a good tool, a poor master, as this Hindu scriptures say. Um, so I'm the founder, therefore, and this is more like a cartoon rather than a reality, of the <clears throat> PA, Thinkaholics Anonymous, where we overvalue thinking and we have to come to realize that thoughts are like a substance that have taken is taking control of us, and we need to resort to a higher power, the inner power, like awareness, etc., to help us back to health and, menta- and basic physical and mental and relational health. And health is the natural state, friends, not illness. Illness imbalances the aberration, so it's a coming back to our true innate wholeness, which is the word zogchen translates coming back to our true nature the natural state as it is which doesn't just mean trees and grass but includes everything that arises on this planet outer and inner phenomena and noumena mind stuff so i love the middle way teaching that things neither are or are not and there also could be both or neither like an electron is a good example of this from modern science which sometimes exhibits the qualities of a particle sometimes the qualities of a wave and it's you can be predicted where that will be but it's not a solid substance most of the time particle nor is it only a wave sometimes it exhibits particle qualities so that's called both and neither in other words they don't just exist well forever or the soul exists forever nor does it non-existent like the word no self anatta anatma no separate independently existing soul, anatta, anatma, which might suggest, if you don't look more into it, it means no separate, independent, permanent, existent self or soul. It doesn't mean there isn't a relative self. Correct. Healthy, individuated ego is necessary to go through life if you're not going to be independent your whole life, or worse, you know, need taken care of in a mental institution and being fed and all. It's important to have a healthy, individuated adult self and develop from dependence as a child 
to independence, not codependence, to independence. But don't stop there with what might be the near enemy of independence and autonomy, which is teenage react overreactive independence. But move from dependence to independence to, listen up, please, friends, autonomy within interdependence. That's very important evolution that we haven't heard enough about. Recognize the interdependence. What, but yes, autonomy within the independence, which is the secret of self-mastery. That it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. And that is so important and so helpful. And I want to underline and highlight that again. Yeah, that's beautiful that, you know, using different language agency within communion. And, you know, I wanted to circle back. You nailed so many really lucid points here. One at the outset is, as you know, you know, when when we work with these um, kind of nocturnal practices, which, again, there's so much code language, twilight language going on here. And so when we're working with um, lucidity and non-lucidity, you know, lucidity is a code word for awareness, in my opinion. Non-lucidity is a code word for non-awareness, or, or in, in this instance, blind spots. And the reason I bring this up is what you were talking about um, a, a, little, a little bit earlier is the blind spot of how that we're all, whether we know it or not, we're all extremists. We're all fundamentalists. We just don't know it. I mean, we're we have all tipped into the the arena, the ditch, as you put it, um, of uh, eternalism, thinking that things fundamentally exist. That's a form of fundamentalism, extremism that we are not even aware of, and and we live our lives in such suffering because of these extreme extremist tendencies. And so, pointing those things out, finding cleaving the middle way between eternalism and uh, and nihilism, finding. Uh, in being comfortable in this kind of liminal space. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in your comments on liminality. And, and, and even, for instance, uh, you interviewed Jennifer Dumper, who, who wrote a, a sweet little book on liminal dreaming, which is uh, her phraseology for hypnagogic hemptopopic states, or what I playfully refer to as bardo states between this and that. And, and so this idea of liminality comes into play here, that we allow ourselves the flexibility to stay on these kind of threshold dimensions between always and never, between here and there, um, in these kind of bardo or, or gap arenas where we're comfortable with not knowing, as Dafri John put it, the, the beauty of divine ignorance, where we're okay hanging out, and that we don't fall prey to what you were talking about earlier, to the substance abuse of thinking, because we're all, again, another blind spot. Um, we're all junkies. We're all addicted to the primary substance of samsara, which is form, which has its most insidious manifestation is thought. So another blind spot or non-lucidity spot is we're all thought junkies. And and the consequence of that substance abuse is just look at what's happening in the world today. And so to to recapture this, you know, you talk about returning to the natural state. I I, I like to play on, you know, I'm like you, maybe you were born in May and you're a Gemini like me with our wordsmithing. But um, you know, Richard Love talked about nature um, uh, disorder, nature deficit disorder. I, I believe we also suffer from a nature of mind deficit disorder. Um, that we've lost touch not only with the natural world, but with the nature of our own being. And in so doing, a, a consequence of that loss, non-lucidity, is in fact this raging darkness of the dark age. Um, and so 
I just wanted to throw that a little bit into the mix and see if any of this pasta, you know, stuck on the wall for you. And if there's something you want to elaborate or, or challenge or go off um, on that. Well, I could listen to you and I'd love to have you on my podcast called Awakening Now, which is on Ram Dass's Be Here Now network. But, Beautiful. But um, I'll also, I'm going to take you to task about your thinking. Because I'm not sure that it's as simple as uh, some of the things that we've been saying. So, okay, let's go for it. You know, and, and that's important that somehow I, th I think, I feel, I'm trying to intuit what I really want to say here and say something, you know, now and fresh and not just repeat catechisms like eternalism, nihilism, and other things we've all learned in our uh, Mahayana Buddhist studies and my right. philosophy, uh, important as it is. And I do base myself in the classics, although I'd rather play jazz with the Dharma um, according to this, each situation and each person who comes to me for it, or my own practice of the moment. But I've certainly steeped in the classics, and I recommend it to anybody, the sutras and tantras, uh, the lineage teachings, and you mentioned some of them, Minjur Tuku Rinpoche and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and others who were alive, speak English, and are pretty accessible if you want to look at it that way. So I'm all for that. Um, I think it's not as simple as we would like it to think. And a, lot, and a lot of people have been involved in these things in practice for a long time and may or may not have the uh, results, let's say, not to be overly result or uh, measuring oriented, but the, that they expected. Of course, expectations are very tricky. As Trung Rinpoche famously said, no appointments, no disappointments. So I put in the word no expectations, no disappointments. But or, it's, you have to have no expectations. But maybe less expectations, less grasping and, and fixation, less disappointment, less dukkha or dissatisfactoriness, less dukkha or suffering as people from the dukkha school, the suffering Buddhists. Uh, from Dukavati, right? Yeah. Dukavati. I'm all for positive Buddhism, like positive psychology. You know, the joy and the positive virtues and the innate natural awakefulness that we have that's taught by the non-dual awareness traditions, Mahamudra and Dzogchen already mentioned, um, <clears throat> Shaivite, uh, Tantricism and non-dualism and others. And I think those are very important traditions that we can learn a lot from and let go of our grasping. and cultivate intuition rather than just conceptual thought and cultivate imagination rather than just trying to control our minds and get calm and clear under thought control meditation. Um, thoughts, every, every momentary arising is like a poem or a bubble in the stream of Buddha mind, Buddha awareness, which is really, and I'll put a hyphen in this word, no mind, the Zen teaching of no mind. There's a book about it. You can look it up by D.T. Suzuki. It's a great teaching, which means no, not no mind or being anti-intellectual or being a doofus or overly simplistic simpleton, but it means there is more to experiencing life than just conceptual thought and interpretation, evaluation. And no mind means wonderment. Well, let me use the Dzogchen term, wonderment, just like a child who is not familiar with things that she sees and everything is wonderful she doesn't know yet she's a snake a leaf 
anything. Imaho, wonderment, open, without previous fallacious or spurious knowledge. Somebody has to tell her to beware of the snake or that she can pick up the leaf or whatever. If she's putting it in her mouth, that's a different question. So I think wonderment is a great understanding as to how we can proceed through life beyond expectations of results of what enlightenment might be or uh, what kind of lifestyle enlightenment people must pursue, how they should look, eat, drink, shave, or um, talk. In fact, some people have told me whenever they hear me on just my voice on radio or reading my books on, quote, tape, audio books and so on, they are put off at first or they're surprised or they think it's like the Lama's translator, then they realize it's just, it's Jeff Miller from Long Island, New York, the three-sport jock who became Lama Suridas by following this path. And that's actually what he's advocating. That if I can do it, you can do it, anybody can do it. And I think that's very important to have this openness, open mind, open heart, open hands, open arms, open community. And we can go on what we need to you know, talk about these days, inclusiveness and other things. So I think this is very important. And um, I, I lost track of what you said that I was going to try to attack. It's interesting you say that because yes. I wanted to bring you back to that. I, yes. I, and I'm, I'm not being patronizing when I say this. I love it when people call me on my BS. And so uh, you were going to take me to task about something not being so simple. So maybe that can jog your memory. What, what did I say that seemed too facile or dismissive or simple? I have my memories going. So I, I'm going, I commit to you. I'm going to listen to this interview with the first half of it and find that, and I'm going to call you then, or email you about it. And, and then so, call me on my crap. Yeah, um, I'd love it. Not, it's not crap. But, you know, <laughs> you know, in the name of not being overly simplistic, Andrew, I did two three-year retreats and you did one. So I see it as my job. To what's correct, and also I'm older and you're younger, so to kick you <laughs> a little further along, you know, as I think it should be. Doesn't oh, I love it, my friend. No, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being patronizing when I say this. Yeah, I love it. But let me, let me, let me toss this in as, is a perhaps a, um, uh, a parenthetical uh, interjection. I think on one level, as you know, and, and let me just say this, that reality is essentially simple. It's confusion. And delusion that's complicated. And so, as, as we both know, this is why I am, and I'm sure you are to a certain extent, I'm, I'm such a fan of integral theory, integral thinking, because while the simplicity, and, and really in this respect, the fundamental spiritual instruction, as I've come to understand it, is extraordinarily simple. <laughs>